You're listening to the Beach Haven Podcast. Today's episode is our seventh in our series titled Jesus on Every Page. Without further ado, our associate pastor, John Walker. Church family, Pastor Rob is on vacation this week. Uh, He and his family are down in Florida and we definitely look forward to him uh, being back with us uh, again next week. If you're a guest, uh, please plan to be here again next week so you can hear uh, directly from our pastor. Now, when my family gets to go on vacation, uh, we often choose to go to Bandon, Oregon. And we go there because my wife has extended family in Bandon. And it's a beautiful village of about 3,000 people right on the coast there in Oregon. And our first stop and our last stop, and maybe a couple stops in between while we're there, is always Face Rock Creamery. Now, Face Rock Creamery is a place where they will make cheese uh, right there in front of you. And that's kind of a nice novelty, but we go for the ice cream because the ice cream is good, and they serve it with Western portions. I'm not sure if you're familiar with what Western portions are, but it basically means a lot. They give us a lot of ice cream. I remember uh, one time I was with uh, my family growing up, and we were traveling through Montana, and we had a, a place to go to breakfast, and there's a choice between one pancake and three pancakes. Now, what teenage boy can't eat three pancakes? And so that's what I ordered, but I'd never seen a Montana pancake before. It was just absolutely huge. I did get through one, thought about the second one, and didn't even think about trying the third pancake. Well, the same's true there at Face Rock Creamery. When they put the ice cream on for the child size, they took, take two big, huge uh, scoops for that ice cream. And it is just absolutely delicious. Now, like other ice cream places, you can get one of those little small spoons. You don't know what I'm talking about. You get that small spoon to help you try to figure out what flavor of ice cream you want. Uh, do you want triple chocolate or chocolate brownie thunder or chocolate chip uh, cookie dough or just, you know, whatever your uh, flavor that you might ask or want for. Uh, and you may want to ask Juliana about her choice for licorice ice cream. Uh, and I mean black licorice ice cream. Uh, she'll be able to give you a, a good story uh, about that. Now, the small size of that scoop is designed to give us an idea of what's to come. It's designed to give a tease. It's not designed to satisfy. And there is a principle for us here that I want to look at today with our, our walk uh, with the Lord, that, that what we are experiencing here and now is just the idea of what is to come. At different times uh, and different seasons in our lives, we can find ourselves often striving in in one of three areas. It can be many more, but let me just mention these three. Uh, We can find ourselves striving for notoriety, uh, success in the classroom, success on the athletic field, success uh, in the workplace. We want our name known. Uh, Others of us are security-driven, whether that's uh, physical security or financial or or emotional uh, security. Uh, We want a place where we will not be disturbed. We will not be bothered. And then all of us in some form or fashion are striving for spiritual rest, being at peace in our inner core. And as we walk through this passage today, I want you to think about how your life has been characterized by your striving for either a name, a place, or rest. Please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the passage that Kevin just uh, read for us here a a moment ago. And it's in this passage that we learn that rather than making those things happen on our own, it is God who provides us a name. It is God who provides us a place. It's God who provides us 
spiritual rest. Now, this is a story in the life of David, and David is one of the more fascinating people in all of Scripture. He lived about a thousand years before Jesus, and we're intrigued with him uh, for several reasons. One is that he's described as having a heart after God and seeking after him, but he's also this, this everyman. I mean, he's just gifted and excels at so much. Uh, just think about some of these characteristics of, of, of David. His is a rags to riches type story, the shepherd boy who became king. Uh, and he was also an accomplished musician, a composer, an instrumentalist. He could not only write the songs, he could play them. And he was a poet and a songwriter. And in addition to that, he was an awesome warrior. The things that David did in battle are scenes straight out of a movie. So imagine uh, somebody like a Kurt Warner, uh, a guy that was working as a grocery store clerk after college, finally makes it to the NFL and becomes a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Or somebody like a Dolly Parton, growing up poor in East Tennessee, one of 12 children, children, and she's now worth over $400 million. Or to, to stay in Nashville, uh, Chris Christopherson, uh, the great songwriter there, who went to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship and was also an Army Ranger. So you can imagine this renaissance man who could also have been on a SEAL team and someone who the Bible describes as godly. Now, David was certainly far from perfect, uh, but here's someone who is described as seeking after God's own heart. And so if you've ever found yourself thinking about name, place, or rest, there is a word for you this morning from, from Scripture. And it's in this Scripture that we see that David, he wants to bless the Lord by building him a house or building him a temple. And God says, no, you're, you're not going to do that. In fact, uh, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you, do for your descendants, and do for all of us who are gathered here in this room. So let's begin in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. So here we're getting just a little context of what's going on. David is, is king. He's settled. He's got control uh, both internally within the kingdom and externally all, all around him. David's got control. Uh, and the ark, the symbol of God's presence was placed in this tent. It's placed in the tent. Now, the ark, uh, the symbol of God's presence, was introduced while the Israelites were in the wilderness. They had left uh, Egypt and all the slavery there, and they were making their way to the promised land. Uh, they were 40 years in the wilderness, and it was there that God had Moses build the ark. Now, once they arrived to the promised land, the ark resided in a town called Shiloh, and it was there for almost 400 years. Uh, one time, the uh, Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant into their war camp, into their battle camp, and then they promptly lost the battle, uh, and they promptly lost the Ark, and it was with the Philistines for a, a number of months. Now, after a heap of trouble, the Philistines sent that Ark back. Uh, they got a couple of cows. They put it on a cart. They goaded those cows, and the, and the Ark went back towards Israel. It ended up in some guy's house, a guy named Abinadab, and it was there for 20 years. It moved a little further for three months. It was in the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And then David finally got it to Jerusalem, and it was there in a tent. Now, it probably wasn't a Coleman tent or a nice tent that you could get at 
REI. It, was, it would have been a, a nice tent, but it was not the house of cedar uh, that David uh, was living in. And so David's kingdom was established, internal, external control. And the Bible says that God had given him rest, rest. And rest is one of our key words today. Uh, yet David, he was unsettled. He was unsettled that he actually had it better than God. He didn't like that. Uh, Brock Bowers is this all-American tight end here at the University of Georgia. He himself has got to get ready to be drafted. Uh, he will most likely be a top 10 pick, and he's most likely going to get a contract worth tens of millions of dollars. Uh, you think he might do something nice for his mom and daddy uh, after he uh, gets that contract? He, yeah, he, he better. Yeah, that's right, Dr. Sims. He better do something. He better be mindful of that. Well, maybe like uh, Brock Bowers, maybe like the other athletes that get that contract finally, David probably understood, in fact, did understand that how he got to where he was was not of his own doings. It was the Lord uh, working through all those circumstances to place them there. And so uh, he wanted to do something good for God. And that is a good thing. It was a good thing that he wanted to do that. However, the story takes a turn. What David wanted to do, he did not get to do. And let's begin or pick up in verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around in a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I had commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? And so David wanted to do God a favor. Yet God did not appear to be put out by what God, what, about living in a tent. He didn't see be possessed or, or disappointed in his circumstances. And so David made the mistake of assuming that he knew what it was that God wanted. Now, again, God later affirms David for having this desire, but God did not possess less glory because he was in a tent rather than in some expensive and, and beautiful building. So God tells David, no. He says, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. And then he turns around and he starts telling David what he is going to do for him. Join me in verse 8. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest of the earth. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day that I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from your enemies. So in verses 8 and 9, we hear God recounting a little history about how he had brought David along and how he has been with David and how he has destroyed all of David's enemies. And all of this is in the past tense, what God has done. Then God transitions to what he is going to do in David's life. And note the three promises that he makes. He said, I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you a place where you will be undisturbed. And I'm going to give you rest. 
rest for you and rest for Israel. Now, wait a second. Let's think about our context. We got to back up. We just missed something. Think about the context. Verse 1, David is where? He's king. He's in his palace. He's got a place. And God specifically says, I'm going to give you rest. So he's already got the promises that God has already providing, provided and that God is promising again. So why is God going to give David something that he has already delivered? And this little, wait a minute, is an idea that gives us the idea that there's something more going on here than about a, than about a house and about a temple. There's something that is greater here that's going on. You know, many messages that we hear, they encourage us when things are difficult, when things are trying, when the circumstances are, are rough and, and challenges. They, they encourage us to hang in there, to hold on. They remind us that, that God is sovereign. They remind us that God is good, that he's got plans to prosper us, not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. Those are great messages. Pastor Rob gave us a, that message, of, really a couple of them, in the past couple of weeks, that God is providentially progressing and powerfully present in our circumstances. Those messages are good. They're right. But that's not the message in this passage today. The message in this passage today is that when things are good, God is just getting started. When things are going well, he's just getting the wheels turning. The blessings that we have here are just a hint and an expectation, a, a, a picture or a fraction of the goodness that awaits for all those who are in Christ Jesus for eternity. So how, how does God do this? How does God do this? How will God add to what he's already given in terms of name, place, and rest? Verse 11, the prophet Nathan continues. He says, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows for mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever, and your throne will be established forever. So God's flipping the script here. He flips the script. David wanted to build a house for God. God says, no, I am going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God's not talking about a physical house, but he's talking about something greater. He's talking about a lineage. He's talking about a legacy. You know, sometimes when uh, people talk about well, where the, the king and queen live, uh, a royal house, they're not talking about the physical palace. They're not talking like a Buckingham palace. They're talking about something different, the, the lineage, the legacy. Uh, queen Elizabeth died last year, and her son, Prince Charles, if you can imagine a prince being I don't know how he was 70 years old. You can imagine being a prince for 70 years. He finally uh, gets to become king. Uh, prince Charles becomes uh, King Charles. The house, the throne remains within the house of Windsor. And so this is the kind of lineage, lineage and legacy that God is talking about here. Now let's think about this. And I think this is a little maybe sticky spot 
for us here to try to make this passage of Scripture make sense because it appears that God is talking about a physical descendant and one that's entirely and solely human. And in fact, in history, we know that David's son Solomon, the very next generation, he is the one who does, who does actually build this house, this temple for God. And it's like the prophecy, Solomon and his children, they are guilty of sin. And then they are disciplined by the, the rods of, and blows of, of mortals. And so within two generations, the, the kingdom itself uh, is divided. There's, there's civil war. Three, four hundred years after that, the Assyrians come and then the Babylonians, to only to be followed by the Greeks and then the Romans. Your kingdom's going to endure forever. The kingdom does not endure forever. The kingdom is going to last forever. History says there's a different story here. How do we make sense of this story? There's, there's a tension here. And if it tension feels a little similar, it, it should be. Because for those who are in, in Jesus Christ, there is a similar dynamic in our spiritual walk with the Lord. There's a similar dynamic in which our salvation is secure. It is secure now, but it is not yet complete. David's temporal kingdom, his descendants, they can only provide the idea. They only provide the idea that is made permanent in the work of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ultimately fulfilled when he returns. So Solomon brought an immediate but partial fulfillment to the promise when he built the temple. In similar ways, uh, although our salvation is secured, it's not yet complete, and it awaits its final uh, presentation, manifestation with uh, Jesus' coming and presence. So let's be a little analytical here. Does this sound like a convenient way to resolve attention in the, in the text? Well, let's just make Jesus the answer. He's the answer to everything. Oh, we'll just say it's the messianic promise. Is that right? Is that legitimate? Are we legitimately pulling that out of the text or are we conveniently reading that in? Are we pulling it from or reading it into uh, the scripture? Uh, several years ago when I was uh, serving as a college pastor here, I, I had an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Nepal with other college pastors. And our, our purpose of our trip was to plan two-week, two-month, and two-year mission trip opportunities for college students over that next decade. Now, Nepal is a long way from here. Uh, it, it's long. It, I flew from Atlanta to Tokyo, Atlanta to Los Angeles, then to Tokyo, Bangkok, and then finally to Kathmandu to get into Nepal. Uh, Nepal is a Hindu kingdom. It's very close to the gospel. And, of course, the most famous thing about Nepal are the Himalaya Mountains, the Himalayan Mountains. And the most famous of that, of course, is Mount Everest. Uh, Mount Everest is uh, 29,035 feet. Uh, it's just spectacular how tall and magnificent that mountain is. And, and because of the scale of things there, anything in Nepal that is less than 16,000 feet is defined as a hill, a mere hill. So if you can imagine Pikes Peak and all those 14ers out in Colorado, they don't raise to the status of mountainhood there in Nepal. And the missionary would say, I often have to tell people that they need to adjust their vision to look higher to be able to see all the mountains. One of my favorite pictures from that trip has 
a picture of the valley. It has the hills, uh, then uh, a bank of clouds, and then the blue sky uh, up above. And, and it's not until you uh, look more closely and you see there's this kind of odd formation in the cloud structure that you realize that that odd formation is not a cloud. It's actually a snow-capped Himalaya mountain that's jutting out up into the blue sky. And it is just an amazing thing to be able to to take all that in. But in order to see it, you had to adjust what you were looking for here and then look higher. That's the same thing that we need to do in this passage. We need to be able to look higher for something or deeper for something that God has that is greater for us in this passage. And uh, we can do that and we can have confidence in that because there are other scriptures that help us see just those things. God tells Jeremiah, 400 years after David, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and will do what is right and just in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. God tells Ezekiel, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. In the New Testament, Paul wrote about God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of David. The gospel writers, they saw the promise. Matthew 1.1, an account of the genealogy of Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Luke, oh, the angel tells Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Those in need saw the promise. Luke records this, that as he, Jesus, approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those on Palm Sunday, they saw the promise. The crowds, then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna to the son of David. And then we can go back to our, our favorite Christmas prophecy in Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. And now in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus himself says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you, the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean? It means that we need to be aware that we are living in a time of partial fulfillment. All things have indeed been made new, but not all new things have run its course. Not all new things have come to fruition. So if you have the idea that things have been not made right, if you have the idea that things have not been right, made right in their entirety, you are correct. But you should at least have the notion, the idea, that the sense of what's to come, kind of like that sample of ice cream. You should have an idea of what is to come. And, and that's the same concept here, that the things that we experience here on earth are not intended to be the fulfillment of any of God's promises, but only a signpost of what's to come. 
We can take heart when we look at our circumstances and know that all the best, not the worst, but all the best is designed to give us an idea of what God has in store for us. It is just a taste. It is just a foretaste of his plans. The, the last uh, paragraph of the seventh and final book of the series in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis uh, shares this. This is the last thing he has to say after seven, uh, seven books. Uh, he says, the dream is ended. This is the morning. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Jesus is the dawn, the beginning from on high. Jesus is only the beginning. David was a great king, but Jesus is a true and better king. How? How? How, how is Jesus a true and better king? Well, listen to these words from uh, the New Testament. Uh, John 1.12, he says, As many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, as many as believed in his name. When you become a child, either by birth or by adoption, you take on the name of your, your family. Are you a part of God's household? Is your name written in the book of life? John also records uh, later in John 14, Jesus saying this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? Jesus is giving us a name. He's going to prepare a place for us. And then in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus calls out, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the promise of name, the promise of place, and the promise of rest, they certainly give us hope when times are difficult. Yes, they do. But when times are good, we know that this is only the beginning, only a hint of what God has in store for his children. So the identity that we have, the safety we feel, the security that we experience, the the love that we know is only intended to be a hint, a, a shadow, a suggestion, a glimpse of what God has for us moving forward, a sighting of what's real, lasting, and permanent. We do not need to look to human agents to meet a need that only God can provide. We don't need to settle for a shadow box when God wants to give us more. If you've found that the things of this world are not ultimately and, and fully satisfying, well, then you're certainly right. These are designed, these experiences are designed to, to push us to find ultimate meaning, a hope and a future in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These promises, name, place, and rest, these promises are made 
available through Jesus Christ. And if you've you've not experienced that to begin with, if you don't even have this hope to begin with, God makes it available through his son, Jesus Christ. And you need to be aware of your sin. You need to be tired of your sin so that you're ready to be done with it, to move away from it, to turn from it, to repent from it. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross, not for any of his sins, but for our sins, for your sins. And you need to believe that God raised him from the dead and be willing to commit to live your life as God would have you to live. God is the one who provides us a name. God is the one who provides us a place where we can be undisturbed. God is the one who provides us rest. Praise be to God. In just a moment, we're going to, we're going to pray. In just a moment, we're going to sing. And, and after we, we pray and we sing, if you want to hear more about that promise, uh, myself and others will be here, and we would love to talk with you and explain that further. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you, to talk about what it means to have that name, place, and rest. Join me in prayer. Thank you.